So as Ryan preached on Thursday last week and told everyone that what's happening is all the students that are taking homiletics are preaching in chapel, and today the short straw fell to me. Uh, that's not to say I prepared this earlier today, but that today is my day to speak. So I'm preaching out of the Old Testament today, and there's actually a reason that I want to do that, and I want to share that with you as kind of my introduction to this sermon. We'll be in Exodus, nice Bible, we'll be in Exodus 5 and 6 this morning. Uh, the reason that I chose this passage is primarily because over the course of my uh, short Christian life that I've lived so far, uh, I have come to the, what I think is clear conclusion that the one thing that unifies the whole Bible is God. The same God that we're going to read about today in Exodus 5 and 6 is the same God that came to earth as the man Jesus Christ in the Gospels, is the same God that Paul in the New Testament authors write about in the New Testament, is the same God that saved all of us here from our sin and condemnation to death. And that's what unifies Scripture. So I'm excited to take a passage like Exodus 5 and 6, which you're probably all very familiar with, and show you how in this passage, all of the characters testify to mankind's wrong understanding of who God is. And that when the opportunity presents itself, God reveals who he really is to us through his word. And that's what we're going to see. He's going to give us the gospel in Exodus 5 and 6. And I'm excited to share that with you. Let me pray before, I know Ryan prayed for me, but let me pray before we start to read together. God, we cannot, we just cannot fathom who you are on our own without you revealing to us and speaking to our hearts through your spirit who you really are. And Lord, we praise you for recording things like this 3,500 years ago that shed light to us in our limited capacity to know more about you, to understand your plan for redemption of your people throughout all time. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me for this purpose of this ministry to proclaim your word, that you would be active in the hearts of the people in this room, that they would grow in their knowledge and love of Jesus Christ, their Savior, our Savior. Lord, thank you for uh, the chance to study and to learn and to glorify you through reading your word. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, as you're flipping to Exodus 5, if you're not already there, I want to give some backstory just to set the stage so everyone's on the same page as to what's recently happened in the life of Moses and his brother Aaron. Uh, there are two of our major characters here in this passage. So back in Exodus, uh, the early parts of Exodus, we all know Moses was born in Egypt and he was put in the river and Pharaoh's daughter rescued him out of the water and then his own mother got to raise him. And then at a certain point in his life, when he was around 40 years old, he ran away from Egypt, right? And he did this under less than ideal circumstances. This is important because Moses was a wanted man because he murdered an Egyptian. Do you remember? He buried him in the ground, and then he ran away from Egypt when it was discovered. So that comes into play because God is going to tell Moses 40 years later, go back to Egypt, which explains some of his hesitation to follow that command. But that's what's been going on in Moses' life. He spent the last 40 years living in the wilderness, uh, tending sheep, 
Interesting correlation between what he was doing for 40 years in the wilderness, shepherding sheep, and what he will be doing for 40 years in the wilderness, that's shepherding God's sheep. I also think it's no coincidence that he spent 40 years living with his in-laws in order to prepare him for the misery of living with the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness. But there's some back and forth between God and Moses at the burning bush. Uh, Moses accepts the commission to go. Aaron, his brother, is also sent to meet him. They have a wonderful reunion. They make their way to Egypt, and they meet with the Israelite elders. And this is the last couple verses of chapter 4. So I'm going to read the last few verses because they complete our picture and set the stage for what we will be dealing with today in chapter 5. Look at Exodus 4, uh, verses 29 to 31. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And this is important. And the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The Israelite elders are reminded of God's covenant faithfulness. Moses and Aaron visit and display these miraculous signs. And they what? They believed. They were excited. Chapter 4, this scene closes with what I term optimistic momentum. Moses had been living in the wilderness. God commissioned him. He was shown miracles to do. He met up with his brother. He made this journey. And things went exactly as God said they would up to this point. And the people are excited about it. We can imagine what the Israelite camp was like on this night. The Israelite elders go back to their regions and they go in and tell their family and they say, Moses and Aaron came to visit us today. We're out of here. We're getting ready to leave this crummy country. Pack your stuff, kids. We're getting out of here. God is faithful. He remembered us. We've seen signs and miracles. Optimistic momentum ends chapter 4. And we go into chapter 5 then expecting the same thing, right? We would expect that Moses and Aaron have been confirmed in their calling and are now going to go in and meet with Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, and things are just going to continue to progress. So let us look at chapter 5 to see how this story unfolds. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 5. This is Moses and Aaron's interaction with Pharaoh. Remember, this comes on the heels of our interaction with the uh, Israelite elders. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So far, so good. That's a direct quote from what God told them to say back in Exodus 3. But Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. This is a quote. 
You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle or lazy, your Bible may say. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men so they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. We'll stop there at the end of verse 9. So our first question in this first passage that we see is, my initial statement was we're going to see mankind's wrong understanding of God. Well, Pharaoh here highlights this for us. How, what is Pharaoh's wrong understanding of God? I think it's very easy to summarize. Pharaoh simply does not believe that the Lord God is worth listening to if he exists at all. What does verse 2 say? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? I do not know him, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Moses and Aaron have come to the king of Egypt, the most powerful man on earth, and commanded him in the name of the Lord, let Israel go. And his response is no. Pharaoh is, in fact, contrasting himself with God, and we're going to see this throughout this passage. He believes himself to be a god, and to be challenged by another nation's god is an affront to his uh, character, to his belief about himself, to what the people think about him. So Pharaoh opposes the living God. Now, how does that matter to us? I mean, this is obviously a, a real story. Obviously, Pharaoh was a real person that lived 3,500 years ago. But I would argue that Pharaoh epitomizes the fallen condition of all of mankind. What's the difference between what Pharaoh says here and what your friends that you work with, that you roommate with, that you know over at MSU, when they say, who is the Lord Jesus Christ that I should obey him? I do not know him, and I will not follow him. This is what our sin nature does. This is the fallen condition of man. We have a wrong understanding of who God is, and Pharaoh epitomizes that here. We will see, and we'll get, we'll get there shortly, but in verses 6 through 9, Pharaoh's wrong understanding will lead to consequences, real consequences for other people, specifically the people of Israel, and we will deal with that shortly. But for now, we have another major character here in this opening scene, and that's Moses, and by extension, Arrow, he, or Aaron, he's not mentioned, but Moses and Aaron here, um, they're the other major characters. So let's see what they've done. How do Moses and Aaron display a wrong understanding of God, you might ask? It seems like they did exactly what God said. God told them, go and confront Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, which they do in verse 1. But let's look again at verse 3 to see how Moses displays his wrong understanding of God. After being told no, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, Please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, all good so far, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Interesting. Moses and Aaron approached the king of Egypt boldly in verse 1 and quoted exactly what they were told to quote by God back in chapter 3. And then immediately upon being confronted with a real obstacle, a real difficulty, a circumstance that they were not uh, prepared for, didn't expect, what do they do? They add to the script. They add their own version of the narrative here. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence and the sword. 
Perhaps they think, maybe if we make Pharaoh feel bad for us, like we're all going to die, maybe then he'll let us go. And that doesn't seem to work either. You see, I believe that Moses and Aaron are revealing their wrong understanding of God, and that is a failure to trust in his faithfulness to do what he said he would do. Who here is afraid of heights? Legitimately, who's afraid? it's okay, you can raise your hand. Who's afraid of heights? I don't like heights. Okay, this will probably speak to you more than those of you that aren't, but imagine you're driving down 191 to go to Yellowstone when the park opens up in April or May, and you're in a car full of people, probably with Luke Engerbretson because he does road trips every time there's a break from school. So you're on your way down, and, and Luke says, hey, let's stop at the Yellowstone zip line tours. We can all do some zip lining. We'll go over the, there's some rivers that you go over, and there's, it's really cool. It'll be a lot of fun. And you are personally terrified of this idea, but for the sake of your friendships and embarrassment, you decide to go. <laughs> so here you are at Yellowstone Zip Line Adventures, and the, the young person that works there comes over and gets you all fitted, and you're feeling pretty confident. I mean, you're like, hey, this is pretty snug. I mean, it feels okay, and I don't see any tears in it. And I mean, in my mind, I know that the trees are strong. I know that the cables that go 800 feet across this water, 100 feet high, are capable of holding me. I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay. I can do this. And then you go to your first obstacle, and you look up this ladder. Hands start to sweat, and then you climb up to the top of this thing, and they say, okay, here you go. I'm going to clip you into this cable and push you off of, onto nothing 100 feet up in the air. And what happens to your confidence in that moment? Suddenly the obstacle that was in the distance and you said, man, this feels okay. Now you're like, I remember in Cliffhanger when Sylvester Stallone, that thing, you know what I mean? Like that's what starts to run through your brain. And you say, I don't know if I can do this. And this is what Moses and Aaron are confronted with here. They believe that the equipment they've been given is fine. They believe at least in their minds, that God is capable of delivering his people like he promised. But when they're confronted with their first real obstacle, which is Pharaoh telling them no, they say, I might need to climb back down this ladder. This is a little bit more scary than I thought. Maybe if I add a little bit to what God told me to say, Pharaoh will listen to me. Maybe I'll, I'll convince him through my wisdom or, or my trickery to let us go. We'll get back to Moses and Aaron. Moses, in fact, is going to come uh, around in a few verses and reveal a little bit more about himself. But what we've seen so far is that everyone in the story, at its core, at their core, has a wrong understanding of who God really is. Let's turn our attention to verses 10 through 21 as we see the consequence of Pharaoh's wrong understanding, as Pharaoh now imposes his, his will on the Israelites. I will read verses 10 through 21. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. Let's skip down to verse 15. The foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. 
That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Pharaoh's taskmasters and the foremen of the people carry out their orders. They're told to impose Difficult labor on the people. Take away straw for stubble. They have to go get it themselves. And the people demonstrate their wrong understanding of who God really is. I think we need to talk about this idea of go gathering their own, go and gather your, your own straw. It'll help us understand the real severity of this problem. Uh, two things will help us understand this. First is history. Uh, there's no evidence that at one point in time, Egypt was just covered in straw. Like it's, it, we might picture uh, Charlton Heston, right? He's over here making bricks in the mud, and then they just kind of walk over here and gather some straw. Like, oh man, this is terrible. We got to get our own straw now. Bring it back and throw it in the mud and start stepping on it. That's not what's going on here. There wasn't straw everywhere. You can't go to any field in Montana to get potatoes. You have to go to where the potatoes are, and it might mean if you're on foot, walking ten miles, and then carrying an armful of potatoes back to your potato brick making pit. <laughs> But in this case, they need to go gather straw. And the text then is the second thing that helps us out. It says in verse 12, the people were scattered throughout all the land to gather stubble for straw. They had to walk, they had to labor for this, which is why it was so difficult. It wasn't just go get straw from over there. And bring, they had to go find it and harvest it and bring it back and not reduce the number of bricks they had to make. So Pharaoh legitimately burdened the Israelites because of his wrong understanding of God. We see this predicament they're in. Does anybody here do contractor work? Anybody done building before? I know a lot of guys around here will do it uh, in the summers and stuff like that. So if you've built before, I know Gail's building like a porch on the back. Imagine if you were given a, a normal timeline to build whatever your project was. And, and normally what you would expect is that you could go to Kenya Noble or to Lowe's and to get all your stuff, and they would even deliver it to your house, and you'd have pallets full of material that you need in order to do this project. Imagine instead if you were to build this project and your boss said, but you can't buy any wood. You need to go up to the highlight, here's a chainsaw, and, and here's a planer, and you need to make your own boards. But I still expect it to be done in the same amount of time. Don't use your truck, you've got to walk there. You see how this is going? All of a sudden, what was a pretty a laborious task to begin with becomes impossible. And that's what the Israelites were faced with. They can make bricks, sure, but Pharaoh took away any, any possibility of them being successful, purposefully. He set them up for failure. And this takes us back to the very first part of the, of the chapter, which I had mentioned before. Who did Pharaoh think he was? God. And he was challenged by the true and living God. And he wanted to show the Israelites that he was actually God. And that they had to submit to what he wanted done. This is Pharaoh's wrong understanding of who God really is. And in connection to that, of who he actually is also. 
This is the situation the Israelites find themselves in, and they demonstrate their wrong understanding of God in verses 20 and 21. They come out to Moses and Aaron after meeting with Pharaoh, and they say, the Lord judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord visited the people, they bowed their heads and worshipped. That's the end of chapter 4. Do we remember? This is moment, uh, optimistic momentum going into chapter 5. And now, days later, after working hard, God is going to judge you because my life is difficult. Yes, the Lord has visited us. Moses and Aaron, you have made my life miserable. If that is not a commentary on the human race, then there isn't one in Scripture. This is what we do. After a couple days of hard work, they lose faith in God's plan to save them. Now, we can wag our fingers at the Israelites. I mean, probably none of us here have experienced the sort of misery that they're going through in this particular context. But just bear this in mind. Uh, we do the same thing. God, I know what the Bible says. I know what your promises are for me. But life is really hard right now. I'm, my finances are not good. My relationships are not good. I'm struggling with this or that. And I just don't know if I can trust you to really pull through like you promised you would. And then we start to blame other people. I can't believe my parents made me go to Bible college. I can't believe they homeschooled me or whatever. And we start blaming our circumstances that we find ourselves in for, and we associate that with God's inability to be faithful. This is what sin does. This is what a wrong understanding of God looks like. So Moses confronts God. This is difficult for me to read. Moses turns to the living God and confronts him because of his circumstances, because of his wrong understanding of who God is. Look at verses 22 and 3. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Evil. Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I'm sure most people here have gone through difficult times in their lives. I have. I don't know if I've ever verbalized my frustration with God's sovereignty like that. Sure, Moses is frustrated. He just left his beautiful family. He left his sheep. He came back to the country he was a fugitive in. He's been uh, confronted by Pharaoh. He's been verbally abused by the Israelite elders. Things are not good for Moses. But does that make this confrontation with God okay? Does that justify Moses' wrong understanding of God? I believe that Moses is displaying his wrong understanding of God. You see, Moses expected God's help to look like his version of help. Moses expected God's timing to look like his version of timing. Is this starting to sound like you're being read from your journal? God expected 
or Moses expected God's version of relationship and, and peacemaking to look like his version of it, and it didn't. So Moses confronts God. I think Moses believed that he could put God in a Moses-shaped box. God will do what I expect, function as I predict. He will certainly not inconvenience me. I believe God looks like this. And then that didn't come true, and Moses finds himself in a difficult position. And I believe, once again, that this is how we respond to difficult circumstances in our life. And praise God that he reveals to us who he really is. God answers Moses in chapter 6, and I will read the first eight verses of chapter 6. As God reveals to Moses who he really is. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slave, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. First of all, it's important for us to acknowledge that God does not directly answer Moses' concerns. Because guess what? Moses isn't in charge of anything. And just like when Job suffers for all this period of time where he loses everything he loves and everything he cares about in his own personal health, and when God finally speaks out of the whirlwind, he doesn't say, oh my goodness, Job, yeah, let me explain to you what's going on in my throne room so you can understand what's wrong with you. He says, where were you when I created the universe? He answers our why question with a who answer. I am the Lord. And he does the same thing for Moses right here. He doesn't say, I'm sorry I inconvenienced you, Moses. I will get right on that. That's enough that he is God. Secondly, God reminds Moses of the very thing that Moses doubted, which is his covenant faithfulness. Remember, Moses lost confidence when he was confronted by Pharaoh because he did not have, I believe, enough faith that God would follow through with what he had promised exactly how he promised it would happen. And God said, are you kidding? I established my covenant. I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I led them to this land and showed it to them. I hear the afflictions of my people. I am following through on my covenant promises. 
and he reassures Moses that he can be trusted, that he is faithful. In fact, he says, I have been faithful. I am faithful right now in coming to deliver them, and I will be faithful. You'll see it when you get to the promised land. What has God just revealed there in those three things? His name. I am. That's who he is. That's his character that we trust in, that God is unchanging and is faithful to keep his promises. He did it then, 3,500 years ago. He did it 2,000 years ago when he brought to fruition the plan of salvation for all of mankind. And he does it now in each of our individual lives as he keeps us blameless before the throne because of the blood of Jesus Christ. God reminds Moses that it's not about Moses. I have heard their groaning. I came down to deliver them. I, have res- I am rescuing them. I am redeeming them now. And this is most significant. Number four, God reveals to Moses and to us his redemptive plan for all of history. He says, I will deliver you from slavery. I will be your God and you will be my people, and I will lead you to the land that I promised you. And that is the gospel in Exodus 5 and 6. Jesus Christ, you see, came to free us from slavery to sin and death, to become our Redeemer and Deliverer and Lord and Savior. We, in turn, His people, His children, and He's coming back one day to take us to the place that He has promised to lead us to. All of this forces us to ask ourselves the question, so what, right? This is 3,500 years ago. How do these things connect with us today? I hope I've shown you that we can't leave this as nothing more than an historical account from 3,500 years ago. The Old Testament does not serve as a textbook for Jewish law or a story about a people group from in the past. This is the Christian Bible, and according to Paul, all of it is usable for reproof and for doctrine and training and righteousness and correcting. And all of it, according to Paul, is able to make us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. And I believe that when Paul writes to his friends like Timothy and says, you have the sacred scriptures and you can be saved by them, he's talking about stuff like Exodus 6. The connecting file between this story and 2016 is not Moses, it's not the Israelites, it's not Pharaoh, it's not Aaron, because they're all dead. It's God, because he's the same. It's the sinfulness of man, because we still need him, because we're depraved. God says, I have come down to deliver you. I have a perfect rescue plan that I put in place before the world ever was. I've seen your affliction. I know your enslavement. And the best part, this is no disparaging comment against Moses, but he is dead. Our deliverer is alive. Exodus 5 and 6 is so important for us today because it reveals to us God's plan to redeem to himself a people. It shows us the unity of all 66 books of the Bible, and it's the gospel. Let's pray.
Thank you, O Lord, for your perfect, perfect plan. Nothing can stop you. You have declared from the past what you will do, and you will surely do it. Thank you for saving us, Lord, for calling our names through no merit of our own, for displaying your great mercy and grace at the cross, for raising Jesus from the dead and declaring him Lord and Messiah, for giving us your Holy Spirit, God, who empowers us for gospel ministry, for the work of the kingdom. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for our time together here. In Christ's name, amen.